to be able to ask them questions that get them thinking and let them come up with the answers so they're not feeling like they're being told what to do, that they're figuring it out for themselves. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lynn Borden, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Are you tired of winter yet? Just a few weeks in and things can get pretty claustrophobic. Cabin fever sets in. So I want to encourage you to join me in a little campaign I call Get Your Coat and Get Curious. Literally, get your coat, get out of the house, and go get curious about whatever is around you. Start with the little things that are right there, low threshold to entry. Folks at Walk Arlington and Arlington Economic Development have put together some wonderful walking tours of neighborhoods and arts that are still good, even in the dead of winter. I've got links on Facebook at Choose to be Curious. Check them out. Or go across the river to one of those world-class museums. Or just pick something and get out of the house. I promise curiosity will ensue. Cabin fever will subside. You'll feel better. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote, I think at a child's birth, if a mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift, that gift should be curiosity. No surprise that I like that quote. What better way to start life than with curiosity? Unfortunately, we don't actually need a fairy godmother to get it. We're just born with it. Warren Berger, who writes a lot on the power of inquiry, calls children, quote, the research and development division of the human species, always exploring. Research has shown that when parents model questioning, especially in response to kids' own questions, the children learn to ask more and better questions. So we can really cultivate this behavior in our kids if we try. And yet, somewhere along the line, this investment in curiosity drops off. Kids go from literally asking hundreds of questions in a day at the age of five to virtually none by middle school. And by the teen years... I don't know. Well, the book of pretty much sums up our attitude about questioning in adolescence, that it's insubordination in its highest form. How does something that Eleanor Roosevelt called the greatest gift turn into the bane of human existence? And is that a curiosity problem? Is it just adolescence? Is it maybe the way we think about how they intersect? So to help me untangle these naughty questions, I turn to two people who do a lot of thinking about teens, and I thought would be game to talk about curiosity. Michael Swisher is the asset liaison for Arlington Partnership for Children, Youth, and Families, and he'll have to tell us what that is because it sounds like a finance bro to me. And Kate McCauley is a psychotherapist and founder and principal of the Center for Parents and Teens, as well as teaching at Marymount in the School of Education and Human Services. So welcome to both of you. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you here. So I'm really struck, actually, that the names of your positions are really start with the idea of partnership. So let's start there. Kind of what, how do you come at this work, and why do you think of it as partnership? Well, the partnership was formed probably 16, 17 years ago, and it came as a group of people who work for different government agencies looked at each other and said, we all serve the same population why don't we talk to each other? Uh-huh. Always a good idea. Yeah, yeah, really was. So you've got the Department of Human Services. You've got Parks and Recreation, Libraries, Police, Family and Domestic Relations, Courts, and one other. Education, APS. Schools, yes. Schools. The biggest one in the room. Yeah. So 
that really started one part of the partnership. At the same time, the county was interested in understanding what's happening with our young people. Mm -hmm. And so a work group was formed that looked at what are some ways to assess that. And they came up with looking at a number of different surveys. They actually found the developmental assets survey. And that's where the where assets come in. Which is where my title comes yes, from, exactly. Yes. Um, it's produced by Search Institute. It really comes out of a question that Peter Benson, the founder of Search, wanted to know why is it that some kids, regardless of geography, socioeconomic status, uh, ethnic Race background, ethnicity. anything like that, why some thrive uh-huh. and do fabulous and why others don't and struggle. Uh-huh. And so set out to follow kids, ask kids questions, surveys, et cetera, and develop this list of 40 developmental assets. So I have to ask, is curiosity an asset? Is it on the list? It's actually not on <gasps> that list. That's terrible. I have to launch a campaign, put curiosity on the list. 40 <laughs> the plus 40 one. The 41st asset. <laughs> right. Well, people have actually said things like sense of humor are not uh-huh. on there. Um, the grit is the new word or right, more sure. recent word, resiliency. So those are not necessarily on there either. They kind of play in through them. Uh-huh. But no, there's no specific asset. There is um, desire to learn um, that definitely is in okay. there. As, oh, so that's I mean, a close that, cousin. That's, that gets in there. Yeah, yeah. And Kate, I know um, from years of listening to you talk about your work, you absolutely think about this partnership between parents and teens. So talk about that and how I, you see it. I started working with teenagers right out of college as a high school English teacher. And what I kept finding was, and, and sort of knew intuitively, was that really what we wanted to be looking at was how to have families be supporting that teenage experience. And mm-hmm. more and more, you see sort of resistance to being engaged in in some ways, the curiosity that teenagers are having because parents start feeling stumped mm-hmm. and they start feeling uh, not prepared to respond to these challenging questions that teenagers have that can feel so annoying. So there are people who really view adolescence as kind of something to get through or past, right? And I know, I know both of you actually really love the teen years. So make a case for the people who don't love the teen years. <laughs> they're, they're looking at each oh other. There's so much. Yeah. It's such a period of exploration. Uh-huh. Eric Erickson, in his Eight Stages of Development, identifies it as the period of identity versus role confusion. It mm. is when children are moving into figuring out who they are, independent of their family, understanding, deciding which values from their parents they're going to keep and which values they're going to issue uh-huh. um, but they're but they're just so looking in for who they are going to be and so they are trying on so many different things and it's that great opportunity to actually have influence at that time as well um, and to be able to ask them questions that get them thinking and let them come up with the answers so they're not feeling like they're being told what to do that they're figuring it out for themselves it's just such a fun time <laughs> It is cool. I remember working fourth and fifth graders, ran an after-school program here in the county, and then working with middle schoolers. I graduated to middle school in an after-school program. And so fascinating because what you're saying as they take their first steps away from all the adults who've defined who they are up to this point, always the the simplest and easy way to step away is by criticizing everything. Mm -hmm. And as I would offer ideas for what we're going to do today in our program activity, Mike, that sucks. It's stupid or it's boring. It's the easiest way. Criticize. I'm not you. What you're doing. I finally learned to push through that and just we're doing it anyway. Uh Um, Uh But that that I would have conversations with parents like, why are they like this? 
Now they're trying to not be you, and this is their first step. They can start by criticizing, and then comes a little bit of the rebellion. I'm going to do the opposite of what you tell me to do. And so just, as you say, that process to me is just fascinating. And to see a change in the middle school years from 6th to 8th grade, even from 6th to 7th grade, is amazing as they go from being children to these young people. Well, and I've heard the years, and I love this, I've heard them described as highly functional, even adaptive behavior, that it's it's a tremendous amount of learning, and the, the things that are trying to parents <laughs> are appropriate and necessary for resilience in adulthood, right? You need to test and experiment. We think that's charming in a two-year-old who's, mm-hmm. or a one-year-old who's dropping the spoon off the high chair to see what happens, right? That's cute. Suddenly when your kid is doing things that involve vehicles or other you know, mind-altering substances or just their peer group, it's less cute, but it's the same I'm hearing it's the same thing, right? I mean, it's just curiosity and exploration. Blowing things up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the the teen brain is just going through such substantial changes in the period between like 13 and 25. And I shouldn't say the teen brain, actually. Dan Siegel, who talks a lot about this, always refers to it as the adolescent brain because Uh it does go. It continues to change and develop and mature until about 25, for some people even 30. And so, so there are just these magnificent changes that are going on um, in that period. And the brain is designed to bring in new information. The brain is designed to seek novelty, um, to do creative exploration Mm -hmm. in order to be able to adapt to this new world of understanding. You know, previous to this, kids were still in magical thinking. They could still believe in the tooth fairy and Santa Claus and those kinds of things. And then for a few years, they're very, very practical and black and white. Mm -hmm. And when they move into adolescence, they're really able to start understanding that there are gray areas. And so now they want to they want to figure out where is this gray area because everything had a right and wrong answer before and now it doesn't. And so they really want to explore that in all sorts of ways and they're going to push boundaries and they're going to try and figure out what is it that I can do and can't do and what can I get away with. All the time also being very anxious. Uh-huh. Um, the, there are four tasks really that teens have um, – in terms of sort of social, emotional, and that is that they are trying to stand out at the same time to fit in, to measure up, and to take hold. And so in the in that process, there's just so much back and forth and to and fro. Oh, that's so interesting because I'm thinking of some of those, they're not really um, a dichotomy, but they're in tension with one another, aren't they? So it's a very sure. dynamic calculus. How do I stand that, out and fit in and at the same time? At the same time. Exactly. So how does curiosity fit into that? To me, it's part of the exploration. It's mm-hmm. trying to understand. You talked about their four tasks. To me, there's two questions that they're asking, and they're, they're, they're required to answer, mm-hmm. really. It's who am I, yep. and what is my role in the world, yep. and what's my place here? Yep. So those are two questions that they are charged. This is what you need to come up with if you move into you know into adulthood. You know, we, And we start – and what we often do as adults is we, we, uh, we minimize that. We sort of – narrow that focus but what do you want to be when you grow up uh, no who are you what do you like to do what defines you so what's my role in the world is more than just what my professional career is yeah. or the job that i hold so allowing kids to explore who am i and that's part of that you know trying on different types of clothing and different types of behaviors music um, 
testing, yeah, moving away from everything that my parents said or did Mm -hmm. um, so that I can be, this is who I am, or maybe it's not. Oh, maybe this is who I am. So, Michael, I wanted to follow up on that piece that you were talking about where we're talking to kids and kids are trying to figure out what's my role in the world. When they're little, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what's your major? Or what do you want to study? Is all a very specific, finite answer. I want to be an accountant. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be whatever. The question that I really think that that teenagers are exploring and that it would be great as a curiosity question for adults to ask is, who do you want to be when you grow up? Ah, yeah. And so then it's exploring, you know, what are your values? And, you know, it, it gives room to, well, I want to be a mom. I want to be this. I want to be someone who makes a difference in the world as opposed to I want to be a specific profession. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, what you are comes to you. And that's really sort of what you were talking about, Michael, sort of that you need that exploration. You need to ask yourself those challenging questions, even being curious about sort of how do I want to be in the world? I think when you say that, Lynn, what it makes me think of also is kids trying to decide how much space they want to take Mm. up. There are Mm -hmm. kids who want to be really big and want to take up a lot of space. And there are other kids who are, whether it's more shy or just more introverted, don't want to take up as much space in the world and sort of trying to figure out how do they do that and yet still sort of fit in and stand out and those things we were talking about before. So, I mean, we've talked about sort of some of the ways that curiosity shows up, but what how would you describe the the value of curiosity, the rewards of curiosity, the risks of curiosity in the teen years? I think that's some of the stuff that scares parents in sure. particular, but any adult who really values and works with young people, they're like, oh my gosh. Which should all the be risky all of behaviors. us, by the way. We'll just say yes. that. Yes. <laughs> Takes a village. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting in. It's, you stop and think about different types of secure, of curiosity because there's cognitive. There's like wanting to know, wanting to understand the whys and what's happening. But then there's also the sensory curiosity. What are the sensations mm. that I'm going through? And so they're doing a lot of both. You see a lot of the cognitive as you have younger children. Very much like, what's that? Why is that? Why is this? But then as they get older and into the teen years, then they're starting to get into more of the sensu- sensory curiosity, not sensuous. Mm-hmm. Although that too. That, that <laughs> too. <laughs> and that's where you see some of the risky behavior. But it's really, it's we call it risky behavior. It's exploration. Some of that can be life-altering, and that's where the risky behavior piece comes in. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about she's pregnant, um, that's that's life-altering. Right, um, right. You know, any sort of substances that can lead to addiction, that can be incredibly life-altering or life-ending. So those that's where you, that's where the risk comes in, and that's the part that, we want to be careful of. Well, and I think parents. that's what most people are afraid of, as opposed to recognizing that one of the things when what we do is encourage curiosity is that that we're encouraging children to or teenagers to be open to change and to live passionately, mm. and that that if they can make that a habit, then curiosity becomes a part of the way that they approach the world and the way that they live their life. By being curious, they have more of a fascination about, you know, what's going on, how things work, and that kind of thing, but also to think about how to design new ways of doing things. Mm. And so, again, the more we can sort of encourage curiosity as opposed to, oh, well, I don't think that'll work, or whatever else, is to say, well, let's see what happens, mm-hmm. and and that there can be experiments. They also develop a sense of adventure when we let them be curious. 
Um, and so those are the things that I like to to try and think about. Do we need to also be the the uh, structure in their lives where we set limits? No, you can't stay out until three o'clock in the morning just because you want to have a sense of adventure? Absolutely. They're, one of the things that teenage brains in their curiosity tend to do is they tend to overemphasize the, emphasize the rewards of a behavior mm-hmm. and really underplay what the risks are. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why we see speeding. That's why we see experimenting with drugs and those kinds of things. And so sometimes we ha- either have to be the reminder to them about what some of the risks are or whether they want to hear that or not, we need to just say, these are the rules. Right. And right. I understand that you don't agree with them, but these, you know, these are the policies in our school, in our house, in our community. So this is interesting because one of the theories around uh, curiosity is that you need to cultivate uh, a tolerance for ambiguity in order to be curious. And there's this thing that happens in the adolescence, I won't say the teen years, in adolescence, you're teaching me, where there's, again, this tension about ambiguity, where people are looking for clarity. Sometimes they feel like they really need black and white rules to your thing about, you know, some rules are appropriate. How many rules? What kind of rules? What's the tolerance for ambiguity? Talk to me about how you see that playing out in these years. I'm going to say just real quickly, and then I'll let you jump in, Michael, is that sort of going back on my developmental perspective, that the more tolerance for ambiguity, we're, the more we're going to see in maturity. Even as they're understanding that there's gray, when they're coming out of that black and white thinking, they still want it to make sense. Yeah, yeah. And that as they move into becoming more mature, I think, I don't know whether you would agree with me, Michael, but I think that more tolerance for ambiguity is something that we're going to see come with more maturity. Yeah, yeah. For them and and us as the adults as well. <laughs> sure. Right. Some of that right. You never toler- really outgrow the need for being able to tolerate ambiguity, do you? Right. Yeah, and- yeah. Tolerate their questions, tolerate their, and not just tolerate, but encourage. Mm-hmm. And be okay for us to be okay as adults to be okay with not knowing the answer or not having a satisfactory answer for them. And that's the ambiguity. I, you know, I get that you don't agree with me. That's what I have for you. Whether it's the reason why you can't stay out until three in the morning or whether it is, you know, this is the extent of my massive knowledge base. <laughs> right. So the show is called Choose to be Curious. I mean, it's my one-woman crusade to get people to be more intentionally curious. How might parents or anyone else who cares about values in any way interacts with people in their adolescence, how might they choose to be curious in constructive ways in relation to that adolescent listen mm-hmm. <laughs> ask questions and listen i know and that and feels like s- too simple but it's really deep and prou- profound isn't it it is simple but incredibly difficult yeah we we judge first of all i think we all have that that lawyer voice in our head that's always thinking about what the other person is saying and if we're talking about children that we are raising we have a deeply invested interest in the outcome there. And so there's what do we want this child to be? What do I want him to think or say or do? Mm-hmm. And so there's that voice and being able to shut that voice down at the same time, judging what they're saying or doing or exploring. And this is incredibly 
important because from a teen perspective, they're ruled by the amygdala. And so they are perceiving threats. Mm. Everything they see, mm-hmm. they're looking, is it a threat or not? And so the slightest bit of tone, why are you yelling at me? I'm not yelling at you. Yes, you are. <laughs> it can come from the, the line of questioning. Yeah. It can come yeah. from the type of questioning. Because it can some, feel like yelling. It doesn't, t- it doesn't take volume to yell. No. Yeah. No. And some of it comes with the types of questioning. In some cases, it's the questioning, period. And in that case, sometimes you just have to push through and, no, I need to understand this. But questions that why is always a tough one that is so They valuable. can't answer. They can't, most of the time, they can't answer why they did something, which mm-hmm. is what we're trying to find out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll make something up. One of the things, Michael, I find myself thinking as you're saying this, though, is, is you know, asking questions is hard unless we're really curious about who our kid is or mm-hmm. who this child in front of us is and who are they becoming. And so then if we can ask questions from our own curiosity mm-hmm. to learn more about them, tell me more, or um, what one of the things that, that teens get very uncomfortable about is if we ask them direct questions about themselves. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to say, so tell me about how it is at your school or the kids around you, what do they think about politics, music, rap, whatever. Oh, so you give them cover a little right, bit. Right, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. Uh-huh. And, they, and they may may or may not know how their friends feel. And sometimes what they'll say is, well, my friends feel this, but this is how I feel. Yeah. And so that's how we can get more information as well. When we ask them directly, they do not want to share. Interesting, interesting. It's part of that wanting to be seen but not wanting to be seen thing. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, or held accountable for whatever their thoughts are. Yeah. Because, because as Michael said, they're in that, def- protect, particularly with adults, in that defensive mode. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like out of time. Oh. <laughs> um, if people, and people I'm hoping are feeling curious about this, where can they get more information? Websites? So where would, Where should we point them? I have a website, strengthandconnections.com, as well as the Center for Parents and Teens.com. And so one of the things that I have there, sort of conversation starters and some questions and things that parents and people who love teenagers can look at. Good. And so we'll also put a connection to that on on the Facebook page, Choose to be Curious. And Michael, does the partnership have a web presence that people can go to? Yes, we do, actually. And you can find us at apcyf.arlingtonva.us. Great. Great. All right. Well, thank you both. But before you go, I warn everybody, we have this great big jar. Analogies. (laughs) Kate's excited. Kate's excited. So reach in, take a slip of paper, and you're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on that slip of paper. And I have to tell you, sometimes um, I am surprised by what comes out of this jar. (laughs) <laughs> because I'm not the only one who put things in here. Um, okay, somebody want to go first, or should I go first? We have one for the audience too. You can go first. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, curiosity is like sand. Um, curiosity is like sand um, because it it exists both in its tiny kind of particulate pieces, but also in this sort of great swaths. Um, And you can build all sorts of things out of it. Uh, And I think you can sculpt curiosity, you can build curiosity in the way that you can build sandcastles and sculptures and things. So that's how curiosity is like sand. Kate, what do you have? 
Fast food. <laughs> so curiosity is like fast food um, because we often crave it. Mm. And a lot of times we crave it in easy ways. When we're curious, we just want quick and easy answers. And they're often unsatisfying. Mm, nice. So that's how it is. Oh, I like it. All right, Michael, your turn. I really like mine. Curiosity is like embers. Ah. That glowing warmth that they give off. It's a sort of a steady, steady warmth that it gives you. But you just provide a little bit of blow on it, a little bit of breath to it and it starts glowing and can turn into a flame and so if you really cultivate the curiosity you'll get this deep heat and from a small spark or a small ember you'll turn someone's life passion on on fire oh, and what it. a great what a great one for this conversation yeah. uh, something cosmic about that i love it and what's the one for and so the one for our audience thank you kate is um leaves um listeners how is curiosity like leaves let us know facebook twitter hashtag analogies so thank you both for this this has really been a lot of fun thank you lynn it's been wonderful thank you very much fabulous really enjoyed it good you're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Stick around. Wendy Mann is up next with the Story Hour. And then don't forget, get your coat. Get curious. Don't forget to send us your leaves analogy, hashtag analogy. Um, and if you get out and about and get curious, send us a picture to share. Special thanks to our guests, Kate McCauley and Michael Swisher, and to Nina, who offered this analogy for marmalade. Curiosity is looking for the tart behind the sweet facade and embracing the surprise flavor. I hope you'll join us again next time when Evie and Sarah Priestman will be joining me to talk about curiosity and gender identity. Until then, choose to be curious.